To say that I'm obsessed with personal finance is an understatement, but I've struggled to find someone I can relate to who can provide sound money advice, partly because in generations past, my culture has frowned upon these types of discussions. The Check Your Money podcast was created in my quest to find a space of support and network of people just like me that want to grow financially. I'm excited to share ways you can improve your current and future financial health, set and meet money goals, and even plan for retirement in this ever-changing economy. I hope that by the end of this episode, you'll say to yourself at least once, I need to check my money today. Welcome to Check Your Money. Really appreciate your support and coming back to listen. So if you've got kids that haven't attended college yet, I'm sure you've thought about how it's going to be possible to afford it. My kids are 10 months apart, so I had to figure out how to do it for two. Can you imagine the stress and the pressure? Let me prepare you for this packed episode about what you may not know about college because you or your child are first generation college bound or because things have changed since you attended. You might want to grab whatever you use to take notes for this one. I'm going to be real with you. College funding options and financial aid is like a semester long topic all on its own. It can be incredibly overwhelming, but I'm going to break it down so you can at least have a starting point. If you want to explore any of what I touch on in detail, please feel free to reach out to me. A few months ago, I filled out my last FAFSA for my household, and I was thrilled to say the least. FAFSA is the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and it needs to be filled out so that a college can figure out how much aid you might qualify for. More to come, a lot more to come on this later in this episode. So, With the whole COVID-19 situation, uh, we weren't sure how the last year was going to go financially. My daughter just graduated, so I've just got the one kid left. As it turns out, four out of his uh, five classes are going to be online, which means there was no need for housing. So cool, you know, like $12,000 saved. I know the bill is usually available around the first week of July, And I also know that this is a time of year I have to go in and fill out the medical insurance waiver. This tells the school not to charge my son for their insurance because he has his own through me. You have to physically opt out of this because they charge it to you unless you tell them not to every single year. If your kids haven't started this process, everything I just said sounded like a whole other language to you because it might be a little different from when you went. If your kids are going to be the first generation college students, then I probably really spoke Chino to you. I mentioned in my intro episode that I was a first generation college student. I had no guidance from anyone in my entire family on the matter. I couldn't tell you if I really needed to take out the loans I did because I'm sure my parents didn't know what questions to ask to get me aid. I don't know if I got charged for insurance, the one I just talked about, or if I could have done a work study, which I did work on campus. I didn't know what I didn't know, and neither did they. Fortunately, though, for my kids, I was able to not just understand what was needed that is new, but also I had a rough idea of what to anticipate. For example, I knew they needed 120 credits and that they needed to map it out to be on track to graduate in at least four years. I suffered the complaining when I made them take winter classes and summer classes so they can save themselves an extra semester's tuition that can happen if they hadn't planned. I only knew this because I had taken a semester's worth of winter and summer classes 
And ultimately, I got pregnant my senior year. So had I not been on track to graduate on time, I don't know what would have happened. I could walk them through their syllabus or their citation methods, and I could do this because I had been there. But if you haven't been there, your kids might be feeling lost. If you have a child who's thinking about college, or it's you that's thinking about it and you're first gen, I cannot stress enough. You need to get over your ish and ask for help. Find someone, please. It could be a teacher you trust or a friend's mom and dad, but please find someone. It could save you headaches, heartaches, and money. And it could be the motivation you need in order to make it to graduation day. I actually found uh, two really good websites. One of them was uh, the affordablecollegesonline.org. And they have an article in there for first-generation college students. And the other one is firstgen.naspa, N-A-S-P-A.org. And another one that says, are you a first-generation student? They both had a lot of helpful information for those that are unfamiliar with the college search process. So let me talk to you a little bit about the mind-blowing stats. According to the U.S. Department of Education and CES, nearly one-third of all incoming freshmen each year are first-generation college students. According to the National Education Statistics, can I just add there literally statistics for like everything? But all right, so first-generation students tend to graduate at lower rates than those that have parents who have earned a four-year college degree due to both social and economic reasons. They might feel intimidated by the financial aid process, or they don't like their guidance counselor, I've heard this one, or really don't know who else to ask for help. 22.26% of Latino Americans, so less than 25%, have a two-year or higher degree compared to 30% of Black adults and 47.1% of white adults. So let me repeat that. Less than a quarter of Latinos versus almost half of white Americans hold a two-year or higher college degree. Why is that? Or why could that be? Little story I'll never forget. I had a friend in high school who did not apply to college because she didn't feel like writing her essay. I'm not kidding. And while we both went to a really good private Catholic high school, where if I'm not mistaken, had like a 97% rate of students transitioning to college, but also about the same 97% of the student body being white, I personally lived and breathed in my guidance counselor's office because I was researching like crazy. My point is that I felt a push that she didn't feel. And I'm not saying her life sucks because she didn't go, but I can tell you that she pushes her kid to do what she didn't feel the push to do. All right, so overall, college enrollment has actually been on the decline. I might sound like I'm saying opposite of my point when I say you can be successful without a degree because it's possible, of course. But what I will say is that in many fields, you have more options when you have a degree. It can help you get in a better wage band. And sometimes you can't even get promoted into some roles 
or even apply for a position without a degree. I'm personally happy to say that the Hispanic high school dropout rate has declined from what I read. And the share of Hispanic high school graduates who enroll in college has risen. It's actually doubled in the last 20 years. We make up 3.27 million students enrolled in 2017. What was interesting for me to find out is that the rates of Latino education varies from state to state. For example, in Florida, a third of Latino adults hold a college degree, a third. Florida has a large Cuban and Puerto Rican population, many of whom come from well-educated families. Roughly 40% of Cuban Americans and 30% of Puerto Ricans have college degrees. And this can be interpreted in, in so many ways. My personal take on it is that so many immigrants come here for opportunities. My own grandfather came to the States from Cuba in the 50s, and I could think of like four businesses he had. He came headstrong and ready to work towards his American dream. My grandmother came here from Ecuador in the 60s or 70s, I'm not sure, but she owned her own restaurant for like ever. People came from towns away to eat her food. I've actually met other Ecuadorians that I've had food conversations with who knew exactly who my grandmother was. And I know there's a lot of debate surrounding immigrants, but from my experience, they don't come here to chill and take. They come here to bust their ass and earn the opportunities that are available. That includes making sure their kids do the same. And lastly, I know it might be a hard decision, especially for our culture, to decide to pursue higher education. As a man, you might feel pressure to work to support your family. As a female, you're raised to be a caregiver. So we'll get that guilt like we're leaving our family behind. If you're the oldest, like me, you might feel like you're abandoning your duties of helping with your siblings. They all depend on you. I can't help with letting all of that go. But what I can say is that you matter too. And I'll leave it at that. So if you already have a school in mind, or you've started the process, you might even want to share with them that you are first generation in your application essay, maybe, or when you go on your tour. Ask all of the schools you're considering about programs or scholarships available to you as a first gen student. Some schools have what are known bridge programs, which are really cool. They're designed to help you understand college life before getting thrown in with the rest of the student body. You can also use this as an opportunity to meet other kids like yourself that you can use as support. So for example, I found that Eastern Illinois University has a program called Proyecto Palante. I checked out their website and here's what they have to say. It's an academic support service program that has historically served Latino students who demonstrate academic potential but do not meet the general university admissions requirement. Proyecto Palante is also a university admitting body responsible for recruiting and admitting students and provides support for Latino and first-generation college students. Students in the program, they're given a two-year adjustment period to meet the university's academic requirements, and they must actively participate in the assistance programs provided and show evidence of academic progress. 
They get guidance and support from an academic advisor until the requirements to declare a major are met. And they get integral information about transitioning and excelling in college via the three credit academic uh, tran transition course. The courses are complement to um, the program's objectives to provide personal and academic support and designed to increase scholastic achievement and persist persistence towards graduation. So how cool is that? The bottom line is that you, you're not alone. There's help available if you just look for it. And don't automatically think you can't afford it. You just have to stay on top of everything and be ready to do some serious research. You got to work for it, but you can do it. There's honestly so much in regards to college funding that's important, but I'm going to touch on the major stuff. You might think that paying for college is impossible, but there are ways to reduce your bill or save in a way that is tax advantage and better growth potential than a basic or even a high yield savings account. You just have to prepare and know what to look for. So let's say you just had a child or you've got a couple years until they start school. The task here is to start saving. And let me tell you, no amount is too small. I was only able to afford to contribute $75 a month per kid for years. And the amount they had doubled what I had contributed by the time they started school because of the type of account I used. There are two great tax advantaged ways you can start saving for your children's college. The first is to open what's known as a 529 savings account. This is a state-based account and in 30 states, you actually get a tax deduction for contributions. Meaning you don't get taxed by your state for this income because you're putting the income into this account. Now, no matter what state you live in, your contributions are not tax deductible for your federal taxes. But again, they might be for your state. Every state calls their 529 plan something different. So just search for your state and 529 plan and you'll see what it is for yours. For example, in Connecticut, it's called CHET, Connecticut Higher Education Trust. Depending on the market, this money could grow to a way bigger amount than if you put it in a regular savings account. So a couple points about the 529. Number one, your child does not have to go to college in the state in which you open the account. So let's say you did open your account in Connecticut and then you moved to Iowa. That's fine. You can use that Connecticut account anywhere. They could go to school in Michigan and still use that account. There are no taxes on withdrawal, withdrawals. I think I've told you guys about my R situation. I have a hard time with them. So um, there are no taxes on withdrawals. I'm just going to stop using that word. Used for qualified education expenses. You can give the account number to family so they can contribute towards it instead of buying them stuff that won't increase in value, to say the least. You can use this account for more than just college. It can be used with limits for any grade private school or for a trade school. You can transfer the money to your sibling, their sibling, 
a niece, a nephew, or even yourself if you need or want to, simply by changing the beneficiary on the account. Since the passage of the SECURE Act in December of 2019, you can now pay off $10,000 of college debt each for the beneficiary and the beneficiary's siblings from unused 529 funds. Your contributions and earnings grow tax-free. There are no income and there are no age limits. And like I said before, you can open the account in any state, even if you don't live there. Now, why would you do that? Well, some states' plans have lower fees. So let's say your state doesn't provide a tax break, break, you're one in one of those 20 states, and they don't have a whole lot of funds and they don't perform very well, like you just looked at the history there, you might want to open up one from another state that does perform well or has lower fees. On another note, there are actually some states that provide a tax break no matter where the resident invests. Those states include uh, Arizona, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, and Pennsylvania. If you go on savingforcollege.com and you look for an article named How Seven Different Assets Can Affect Your Financial Aid Eligibility, there's a great chart in there and it has the country and you can compare the different states within the country. And they also have a rating system for each state's plan. So that's pretty cool if you've got some time to click around in that chart and see what works for you. The cons about the 29, you know, the, the negative part of it, like I said before, the investment choices might be limited, but um, they usually have what's called an age-based fund. And what happens here is that the risk gets lowered the closer they are to graduation. So this can really be a, like a set it and forget it kind of account. You just put how old they are. And as they get older, they'll lower the risk. So this is kind of similar to like a retirement account. When you do like a target fund, like you're going to retire in 2065 and it's, you know, 2020. So they invest more in stocks now and bonds later. So it's the same, same kind of thing. Um, it is counted as an asset for FAFSA, which I'll go over later on. If you don't use it for education expenses, you will have to pay a penalty to get that money back. Plans are limited to one beneficiary at a time. So if you've got multiple children in the family, you might need more than one account. But honestly, like these are super easy to open. You just do it online. You can open it within minutes. So that's really not a big deal. But again, you can split it out by kid. Another tax advantage and less commonly known way that you can save is to open up a Roth IRA. This may sound off to you because a Roth IRA is for retirement, right? Like you're supposed to be saving for your retirement in there. Well, what if you only have one child and they've expressed no interest in higher education? Or what if they're amazing in some sport and there's a high possibility they're gonna get a full ride somewhere? Or they're really, really smart, so they might get a full ride somewhere. If you have that money in a Roth, either they use it or you can keep it for your retirement. So it's a win-win. Interesting points on the Roth is that there'll be more investment choices. 
you have to have the account open for more than five years before you can withdraw any of the earnings. So this is something you want to open before they enter high school, preferably. You can withdraw your contributions at any time, though. You can only contribute up to the current limit per year, which right now is $6,000. Money that's in a Roth isn't counted for financial aid purposes, which is cool. However, withdrawals are counted, and that can affect your financial aid package. And I really plan to go on this later on, so just sit tight. But um, that's because withdrawals are counted as income, even though the money isn't taxed. So you have to be careful about when to use it. One strategy would be to use what you have in a 529 first to pay for tuition and then pull from here their third or their fourth year. Unlike some 529 plans, there's no state income tax deduction for a Roth IRA. So if you're in one of those 20 states that don't give you a deduction, then this would be kind of apples to apples on the 529 versus using the Roth. You don't have to choose between a 529 and a Roth. You can use both plans as a strategy if you want and have the money to do. When it comes time to pay tuition, like I said before, you can use the money from the 529 first and then tap the Roth for any leftover expenses. And whatever money's left in the Roth can just stay there for your retirement. So there are two ways you can save for tuition, right? How do you avoid or reduce the tuition? If you're a first-generation student, there's a website, um, Unigo, U-N-I-G-O.com. They have a list of organizations that help first-gen students. And it's a huge resource for scholarships as well. You really should check it out if you're looking for some scholarships. And a little side note about scholarships. You might have to write an essay or fill out a long application. This time that you're going to spend on that is worth it. Please take the time to apply to everything you can but you should never pay to apply for anything, okay? Scholarships.com also has a first and family scholarships, so check that out. I've said, talk to your guidance counselor and ask about local scholarships. Be nice. If you don't like them, just be nice and talk to them anyway. Um, they can be a huge, valuable resource for you. So it's worth it to become really buddy-buddy with your guidance counselor if you can, okay? Get the latest version of the Ultimate Scholarship Book. That book has, it's like two or three inches thick, and they generate it every year. So there's a new book every year. And it lists out unimagin unimaginable amounts of scholarships. And don't ignore the little ones. $500 here and there can add up. Now, when you get your financial aid award amount from the college that accepted you, just beware that you can literally call and ask for more. That one phone call might get you $1,000 or more. I've done it. I've gotten $1,000 for one kit and five for another just by saying, is there anything else you can provide? No kidding. Some schools provide an annual grant for you just for having visited the school. 
Seriously, one of mine got $1,000 per year for all four years because she did a tour her senior year. So a half a day or whatever it was, and it was worth $4,000. After your first year, try to get a spot as an RA, a resident advisor. This can offset your housing costs. An RA is basically in charge of making sure that everybody on their floor is following the rules and you get to live for free for doing it. And now the beast, I'm not trying to scare you, but FAFSA. So FAFSA, FAFSA is the application that the student has to fill out. So your expected family contribution known as the EFC can be determined. Basically, you enter all your financial info and there's a formula that decides what they expect you should contribute to college for that year. FYI, the formula doesn't really care about your bills. They just care about what you have in assets and income. Now, let me be clear. The number that is generated at the end of this, when you're done entering all that information, is not, I repeat, is not what you're actually going to be charged by the college. The college uses this number to determine what they're going to give you in the form of grants and aid. So please don't put too much stock in that EFC number. It's not the end-all be-all of what you're going to have to pay. But yes, generally speaking, a higher EFC means less financial aid eligibility. But this is also why I just went over the scholarships, because to some, some extent, you can try to reduce your bill. All right, so back to FAFSA. If the student attends for four years, you have to fill this out every year. So four times. It's available in October. They just started doing that a couple years ago. But for right now, it's available in October. So in October of 2020, you will fill out your FAFSA for the 21-22 school year. And you're going to use your 2019 information, your 2019 tax information. Okay. You're going to go on studentaid.gov and you're going to create an FSA ID. If the student is a dependent on the parent's taxes, then you will create two IDs, one for the parent and one for the child. It will ask you for information such as name, address, how many people in the household are full-time college students, um, child support, uh, whether you plan to live on campus, information about investments, property you own, how much you have in bank accounts, and your tax return. Let me explain some behind-the-scenes stuff and how your assets affect the EFC. Parents' assets versus a student asset is valued very differently. People get all crazy with this stuff, but unless you're a bajillionaire, it's not that serious. Right? For example... Only up to 5.64% of a parent's assets are considered available funds to pay for college, compared to 20% of a student's asset. So as a parent, for every $1,000 you have in the bank, they expect $56.40. If the student has $1,000 in their name, they expect $200. Also, the value of your primary residence, so the house you live in, does not count as an asset, or the house you own, rather. So if you only have one house, 
you're good. If you have an investment property, that's where it counts. Also, if you have a grandparent giving money towards school, your best bet is to have the money go to the parents because of the percentage I just explained. Or have them give it to you the last year of school because by then you don't have to fill out the FAFSA. Money that the parent or the student has in retirement accounts are not counted as an asset for the EFC. You could have literally a million dollars in there and they know this is retirement money, not money for tuition. And yes, this includes the Roth IRA I talked about. If there's there's a 529, those funds are owned by the dependent student or one of their parents. They're counted as parental assets on the FAFSA. Again, that's the 5.64%. Withdrawals from here are used for that are used for education don't count as income. If the student happens to have a custodial account like an UGMA or UTMA, it counts as a student asset of 20%. If you have a family-owned business and control and control more than 50% of it and have less than 100 full-time employees, that does not count against you. If you have a whole life insurance policy or qualified annuities, you're good. Investments. All right, so the value of a mutual fund will count as an asset. Distributions from a mutual fund to pay for college will count as income. Dividends and capital gains that are reported on a 1040 will count as income. Any interest, dividends, or capital gains reported on the student's income tax return, they count. Um, they're assessed at 50%, as a matter of fact. Lastly, they do expect that you have some money in savings. So they've included an asset protection figure. They don't really expect you to go broke, theoretically. At the time of this research, it goes like this. The asset protection allowance is actually $35,000. So for example, if you have $25,000 in reportable assets, then there will be no contribution expected from those assets because the total doesn't exceed the protection allowance of the 35,000. But let's just say you have $200,000 in reportable assets. You're gonna be expected to make that 5.64% contribution, not including the 35. So the math turns out to like $9,300 a year. All right, so you've entered everything. You're gonna now enter the colleges you want the report sent to. My recommendation is to send this to every single school applied to so you don't miss any deadlines. Doesn't matter, it doesn't cost you anything and they get it and you don't apply, it doesn't really make a big deal, right? They just have the information. It gets sent electronically too. So if you happen to log back in and make any changes, they automatically get sent to the schools that you listed there. I know this sounds like a lot, but if you have all your information, it'll take you maybe an hour or so to input everything. The cool thing about it is that in most cases, they automatically input your tax information for you or import it. So when you go in to do it the following year, you just have to update the numbers and import the new tax file. It'll take you like a half hour once you've done it the first time. The site also includes a filling out guide 
And then they have little question marks that they further, where they further explain what they're looking for in case you're confused about really what the question is asking or just Google. Google's really helpful with, you know, what does this question really mean and how do I answer it? Just read carefully. And if you feel stuck, just reach out maybe to the guidance counselor or someone like me who can help. I will add that about 300 schools also use what's called the CSS profile to determine the student's eligibility for their own institutional aid dollars, like private schools and stuff where they have their own private stuff. It's very similar to the FAFSA and you'll have to enter a lot of the same information. The difference is the CSS profile is way more detailed and some of the assets that count in FAFSA don't count here and, and vice versa. For example, home equity doesn't get reported on the FAFSA, like I said, but it does on the CSS profile. 20% of the student's assets are counted in FAFSA. They're counted at 25% on the CSS. If you're curious, I know I went through a lot. So if you're curious about the differences and all the little nuances, if you go on um, edvisors, so not advisors, but edvisors.com, they have a FAFSA versus um, the profile, and there's a great chart showing all the differences. But to recap, the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA, and the CSS profile are the main financial application forms. Each form uses a different needs analysis formula, and I'm getting a little technical here, but the FAFSA uses what's called the federal methodology, so FM, for determining financial need while the CSS profile uses an institutional methodology, IM, and consensus methodology, CM. I know you probably don't care about all that stuff, but I just thought interesting to learn about it. Um, and the details of the methodologies are going to vary from college to college for that CSS. And like I said before, the CSS profile asks way more questions than FAFSA, pretty detailed, pretty specific, um, and if you're not sure if the school you're applying to requires a CSS profile, they're all going to take the FAFSA. That's a given. But if you're curious about the CSS profile, just ask their financial aid people or their admissions department. So I know I provided a lot of information this episode, a ton of information. It could have probably been two or even three separate topics, I know. But I also know a lot of students and parents really don't know where to even begin when it comes to financial aid or how to save for college beyond the standard savings account. I wanted to make sure I covered as much as I could, even if it was at a high level. If you want to explore any of this, I stress any of this deeper, or you want to go over your specific needs, please reach out. I'm so glad to help. Check your knowledge. You're either hating me right now because I just went on and on and on about just mind-blowing stuff, or you're loving it because you really wanted to know about all of this, in which case I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. This is one of the topics that I know can, like I said, be mind-blowing, and I'm sure your head is spinning, but I have another idea you may not be aware of. Your state might have their own specific, yes, I'm sorry, their own specific financial aid forms. But hey, it's more money, okay? So for example, um, Florida, and 
everybody who's listening knows I recently moved here. So I'm learning a lot about Florida, but Florida has something called a Florida financial aid application, FFAA. You go on there and you apply for state scholarships and grant programs. For example, they have something called Bright Futures that is funded by the state lottery, which is really cool. I recently came across two people at the pool, as a matter of fact, um, who did what was required and got 75% off tuition and 100% off tuition. Yes, you heard it correctly. A free ride. All they had to pay for was books. And it's not a raffle type of thing where you just submit an application and you hope you get picked. It's a you earned it type of thing where you do a ton of community service hours, like a lot. Um, you have a high GPA and stuff like that. So they have you know their own requirements. Check it out and see if your state has something similar. I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope that I have inspired and motivated you and didn't make your head spin too much. My goal is that at some point during this episode, you said to yourself at least once, I need to check my money today. You can find me on Instagram at checkyourmoney underscore podcast and Facebook at checkyourmoney. Hasta la próxima. Until next time. Thanks again for listening to the Check Your Money podcast. I would love to hear from you. You can email me feedback at norma at checkyourmoney.today. And remember to subscribe, follow, and rate at Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also, if you can, please leave a review if you're enjoying this podcast. It's the easiest way to help it grow and be able to help continue to motivate and inspire others. The information provided in the Check Your Money podcast, associated social media accounts, and website is intended solely for the personal non-commercial use of the user who accepts full responsibility of its use. While we have taken every precaution to ensure that the content of the aforementioned is both current and accurate, errors can occur. We accept no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content. The information provided by Check Your Money and its affiliated entities is general in nature provided for educational purposes only and should not be considered to be legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. In all cases, you should consult with professional advisors familiar with your personal factual situation for advice concerning specific matters before making any decisions.